Hi, I'm Sanjay Swami, Managing Partner at Prime Venture Partners. There's this wonderful phrase, shoulders of giants, which essentially refers to the fact that the current generation benefit from the work done by some of the incredible thinkers in the previous generation. And for the current generation of entrepreneurs, a giant on whose shoulders they are standing is a man called Sanjay Swami. Sanjay Swami is a doyen in the startup ecosystem and he saw the vision of mobiles disrupting the Indian economy way back in 2003 when the first Reliance CDMA mobile phone was launched. He spent the next decade building businesses and products in the Indian tech industry that were way ahead of their time. And he started not one but two startups, both of which were acquired by big tech companies. Today, most listeners would know him as the man behind Prime Venture Partners, which is one of the biggest homegrown VCs in India, having funded dozens of iconic startups. In this episode of the Founder Thesis Podcast, your host Akshay Dad is talking with Sanjay Swami about his amazing multi-decade journey in the startup ecosystem and learning some valuable lessons on starting up, getting funded, scaling up and how to think about exits. Listen on. And if you like such insightful conversations with disruptive startup founders, then do subscribe to the Founder Thesis Podcast on any audio streaming app. I grew up in India in, I guess, we are Kannadigas. So we're actually one of the natives of Bangalore and Mysore. So my dad was in the Air Force, one of the very early people in the Air Force. And uh, he was deputed to set up the MiG engine factory in uh, Koraput in Odisha, just around the time as I was born. And I grew up in a very small town, it was a township, a HAL colony, uh, till I was 10. And uh, very interestingly, some of my really good friends in life now are were some of my best friends in school then, right, even after the fifth standard. And so T.N. Hari, for example, and I, T.N. Hari is the very well-known uh, big basket guy. So we actually co-authored a book about three years ago, uh, which is really funny because we were best friends till the fifth standard. And then we lost touch for 45 years as and reconnect again. And then did my undergrad. So went 11th and 12th also in St. Joseph's College. Then went to uh, UBC in Bangalore for my engineering. I did my undergrad in electrical engineering. And during the course of my engineering, of course, I had the unfortunate instant. My dad passing quite suddenly. And then, so my mom has since been, of course, very strong in my journey as an influencer. During my schooling days, you know, very, I would say I was really good in arithmetic, I think, and that's about it. I enjoyed physics, enjoyed chemistry, not so much biology, was always clear, was always good to be a engineering student, not a medicine student. So I did my four years of engineering and in Bangalore University. And uh, unfortunately, that was the time. It was four academic years that ended up taking five calendar years. So we all lost one year because of delays in exams and, and stuff like that. But yeah, right after that, I had both the option to go to the U.S. as well as I got a fellowship to go to France. And I had studied a little bit of French in high school or PUC. And so I, I said, this is a more unique opportunity and it was a better fellowship. So I ended up going to Toulouse, uh, France for a couple of years. Ended up doing a master's in, in avionic systems. Fascinating uh, experience. Everybody says, oh my God, and how could you study in French? Actually, Studying in the foreign language is amazing because if you do well, it's despite the language. And if you do poorly, it's of course because of the language. <laughs> and then later I went to 
the U.S. University of Washington in Seattle mm-hmm. and got a second master's there, hoping to do a PhD, but I ended up not being able to sort of make the grade. It was a tough time. There was, you know, it was 92. There was a recession in the U.S. There wasn't a lot of assistantships. And so it became very tight. And so I ended up finishing up the second master's and then looked for a job and eventually finding one. It was almost impossible to find a job in the U.S. And had to figure out some ways to, you know, some database programming. And then I actually worked in a place which was called an involuntary clinic. And I had no idea what that was, but I said, well, we're paying well. And I got a database programming job. And after about three days, I asked the person there, it was a hospital. I said, why do you have all these keys in the elevator? And she said, you don't get it, do you? The people that we are looking after here are not just cuckoo. They're also criminals. I said, these are actually people who are claiming to be mentally unstable, but they're actually criminals. Some of them might actually have been, some might not. And my wife was like, there's no way you're going to go work there. It doesn't matter, give up the job. And so I had to actually go rent a computer, get a copy of the software at home and do all the work from home. And that paid for about four months of our living. And we just managed to get things forward over time. And then got a job and moved to Silicon Valley. The job happened to be with the company of one of the first Indian entrepreneurs in the Bay Area called Dr. Narayan Gupta, who later started Nexus Ventures and sadly passed away about a year ago or less than that. But he was has been a mentor to me throughout and about seven years in his company. What was the company doing? What were they building? So the company was making design simulation software for the aerospace industry. I started in customer service, then I went sales, then I went to Europe. I helped set up the European operations and then the customer demanded that I was be the point of contact in an engineering. So they moved me into product engineering. And then later I went into marketing. And at that early stage, and I got such a 360 degree exposure to the operations of a company that was making several hundred million dollars of revenue and sort of just roll up your sleeves and just do great work, right? And anyways, after integrated systems, I got an opportunity to work at Xerox, which is where everything in technology got invented. I was actually a business guy in in a technology firm. And so Xerox at Park, they had a lot of the technology innovations. One of the big areas was digital rights management. And so there was a group being set up there where they wanted to take the IP and the patents that they had developed and, and got granted and said, can we package these into digital rights management technology for documents? Because that's the business Xerox was in, right? Document uh, processing. And so they needed a marketing guy. And, and so I got pulled in and became the marketing guy on that team. And over the course of, I guess, two years, we spun that group out into a new entity and then licensed the IP back to Microsoft. It was a, it was a large contract because Microsoft was getting into streaming media and, of course, a lot of documents. And that technology IP was very important for them. Of course, they, over the years, have built a lot of their own IP, but they wanted some access to IP. And, and so that uh, was a project that I was very core, deeply involved in. It was the first time I understood what it means to get a new company being started and incorporated a joint venture between entities, shareholding, all of that stuff. It was like a baptism by fire. And uh, then I worked at a company called Portal Software, which was selling billing software for for the telecom industry. And there also the world was moving from charging for minutes of voice calls to saying, now you're going to start having some 
data and content and things like that. And it might be subscription. It might even be usage-based pricing, things like that. And you needed more sophisticated systems. So 2002, I, I was running a very small two, three person group. And we had, I remember coming back from LA with a $750,000 purchase order for from Sony Pictures. And I landed and I went to the office and my boss said, this is great, but your group is going to be terminated tomorrow. I said, but we are profitable as three of us and I just, we have $750,000. Hey, he said, ah, no companies decided, you know, if it's not wireless telecom, we're going to cut everybody. Boom, gone out of a job. Apparently, my wife had actually, she had gone through a startup that went startup, acquisition, spin out, IPO. She was a finance exec and she'd been like working really hard and, you know, we had, we had a little boy and she had decided to quit for me. And so here I was also without a job, a house that we had built from scratch and we had a huge mortgage and things like that. I was scratching our head saying, what the heck do we do? We don't have a place to go. And we had a little bit of savings, but not a whole lot. Ended up getting unemployment benefits for that period of time, which was not nothing much. So back to the second time where we are in this mode of coming back down to zero in nothing. And uh, but we had this beautiful house. We said, let's put the house up on rent and maybe we'll find a smaller house or maybe build something else. We're talking with her. And I literally told her, look, let's just go back to India. You know, I mean, we were here on a vacation, so we went back to the US, shipped all our stuff to India. I had no job, nothing. So I want to go and figure out, can we do... Uh, you sold your house? No, no, we actually had rented it out. So it continued to stay rented at the time. And so when I came back to India, I started thinking through mobile payments and understanding it. And on the way to the, literally as I was driving to the airport, a friend called me and said, I've got a friend who's got a team in India. They're doing a lot of work in the mobile industry and he wants to, wants to see if you'll run the India team. And so I spoke to him at the airport and I landed on a Friday night thinking I was going to take a year of vacation. Monday morning, I started work and, and it's a company called M Portal. And they were doing work. Uh, in fact, Arcom had launched this R World thing and there was this thing called Bus Button the Bow and you press the R button and things would happen. That entire software stack was written by our team. And it was great for me because I also had this idea to do mobile payments and they were this big team doing mobile stuff. And so I got to learn a lot about that industry. But after nine months, we said it didn't seem like it was working out and it didn't, uh, they were much more of a services mindset. I was more of a product guy. And so we decided to part ways. Uh, and then I got hired by another company in the US to build an India team, an engineering team, a company called Ketera. And uh, so I set up the org from scratch. I was employee number one. After six weeks, I called my boss and I said, am I not supposed to get paid? He said, yeah, you have to set up the bank accounts. You haven't set up the bank account. So I ended up, you know, setting up the bank account and then after that getting paid. And so like from as entrepreneurial as, as it can get. And then along the way, about 18 months in, uh, I got a call from Rajesh Jain, who was a friend of mine. Rajesh was one of the first entrepreneurs in India in the internet era. And he had sold his company to Sipi for $100 million at the time in the, in the early 2000s. And I was chatting with him. He said, hey, I have this idea on mobile payments. And he said, oh, it's an interesting area, you know, uh, send me something. And so I put together the business plan and I sent it to him. And one of the big things I had said was the mobile phone will become your ATM. And phone as an ATM was one of the first things that I had looked at. It turned out that around the same time, there was this company called A Little World that had created a prototype of this a product called MCheck. And they were about to launch it with Airtel and Visa and ICICI Bank. 
And Rajesh was invited to invest in that company by VC. And he said, oh, I know this guy in Bangalore was very interested in this area. And so that's how I got pulled into MCheck. So as the company was formed, I was brought in as the, initially as the CEO. And then Anurag decided he wanted to stay much more bottom of the pyramid. And so he left and then I became the CEO after about three months. And uh, that was the first, uh, I would say, large scale attempt at digital payments in India, at mobile payments in India. In fact, uh, finally, I just uh, this had a meeting with Tandon and we were talking about uh, you know, UPI and how it has really thing and its scale. You know, pretty much everything that Apple Pay and M-Pesa and all of these guys were doing, we were doing, attempting to do in check in an improperable manner. Really, it was probably two generations too early, we were on feature phones running on the SIM cards or on USSD and things like that. But it was very clear to me all along that this is how we were going to transact in the future. Essentially, you were trying to do a payments product, like an interoperable payments product, because M-Pesa was only a Vodafone product, like only Vodafone users could use it. So you wanted something which is... No, we were working with Visa. So that's, that's the thing, right? It was a bank-insured debit or a credit card. It was a Visa card, so it was interoperable, but it only worked where we had signed up both sides, the merchants, and it ran on the SIM card of the telco, but it wasn't a telco product. And in that sense, it was exactly like Apple Pay, where the NFC chip that they have, it was the SIM card because it's, it was the only secure element, and that had to be issued by the telco, but the telco had no say in the, it was like a private network that we built on the SIM card. But of course, in the business model, in the revenue share, there was obviously some revenue share for each party, including the telcos, right? So it was very ambitious because we were really trying to get the entire ecosystem to work. And in hindsight, I used to look at this and say, I don't know if I can fit their egos in the room and I'm trying to fit everybody's business goals here. And we were very fortunate, very strong support from the telcos. Then Gopal Vithal was the chief marketing officer at the time and we still have a good relationship. Everybody wanted to make it work. Everyone had something different that they wanted to get out of it. But I think everybody felt that at scale, this can be very valuable. It was clear to me after three, four years that this was not going to happen at scale anytime soon. And so I moved on. And so three years later, I think was the time when Paytm came about and, and then they, of course, they approached it differently, but they also had a strong run until UPI came and then became an open and profitable space. But I wrote a blog about identity when Sunil Akhani was appointed as a UIDI chairman. And I think he read it somewhere and then through his office, I connected with the team. And then after I left MCheck, I reached out and said, hey, I'm just taking a break, but I'm happy to help. And so that's how I ended up getting on the team and working on several applications of that, conceptualizing them, conceptualizing electronic KYC, instant account opening without any paper and things like that. And I used to have a small team from Nokia that was building demos and I would go and show it. So we should, you know, put this into the agenda for showing it to the RBI governor and to show to IRDA and all of these. And over a period of time, these demos that we would show people and their jaws would drop. It really is revolutionary to think that you could do this without paper. And so it was a real privilege to be part of that team for about 12, 18 months. But the entrepreneur in me was at the side saying, oh, I got to start something or do something. And so we parallelly started the two companies. We started ZipDial with a couple of colleagues from MCheck and, and we started uh, EasyTap. In fact, EasyTap was the fourth bedroom of a four-bedroom house that hosted ZipDial. So three bedrooms and the, the fourth bedroom was EasyTap. And it started just as a, almost like a hobby with some personal savings. And then both the companies suddenly ended up getting some traction and Zubdial, of course, got some good initial. Right. Could you talk about each of these companies? What was the, the problem that you set out to solve? 
for each of these? What was the market? Yeah, so zip dial was a wacky idea, right? At the time, to get some information, you had to SMS ICICI bank to 7 or 58888 and it was 3 rupees per SMS and you'd get a return SMS. And Valerie and I, Valerie was this American young lady who came and worked with me at Demcheck and she and I were on the plane ride once and I said, hey, instead of saying this short code and a, and a message, what if we made it a unique number and you just gave a missed call to that number and so it's toll free for the user and the server will know who dialed for its number and would send a response that was appropriate. And so she came home that weekend and we sat down. My wife kept serving us a lot of goodies and chai, I guess. And we kept thinking about all the possibilities that you could do. And there were also some nice payments related things that like what if you could dial a number and get my back, right? And what if you could do this and you could do that? And all you needed was a feature phone, the, the lowest of the lowest phones, and you had a toll-free global network. That's really what it was. So we, uh, we actually conceptualized this, started saying, hey, maybe we can file some patents here because nobody had done this before. And after I left MCheck, my other colleague, Amir, we had worked with me at Kedera, he said, hey, what are you doing? And I, on Yahoo Messenger, I typed this idea to him. That's a great idea. I said, build it. So IPL was coming around. We said, let's just put a cricket score service. And you dial a number and you'll get the latest IPL cricket score. Yeah. In the beginning, not many people used to care about it. But over time, we started pushing some clubs. Then Ashish Sinha wrote a blog about us. Ashish had worked with me in Katera, so I had good access to it. Lo and behold, suddenly the volume started increasing. And then World Cup football in South Africa 2010 came about. And we used to watch the matches till the middle of the night and update the score. And you think this was a very mundane thing. The score is publicly available. But people would wake up in the morning and even before they put their glasses on, would dial that number. And an SMS would come with the scores. And I think a couple of times, Amir or I would fall asleep and fail to update the score. People start calling and scolding us. And we said, my God, people actually take this seriously. They care about this. Right? And so th that went along for some time. And then later we pitched this thing to Mumbai Angels. And one of the gentlemen there said, this is amazing. You have changed marketing forever. Was a gentleman who was again no more with us, but uh, Ranjan Nag, who was one of the doyens of the advertising industry in India, and he basically stood up and told everybody who was telling us why this is going to fail. And he stood up and told the audience, "You guys don't get it. These guys have changed marketing forever. This is going to be the call to action." And of course, if you fast forward to today, many marketing campaigns they give a missed call to this number. Right? We actually had built that from scratch. So that went on, and of course, I was never in an operating role. Valerie and Amina ran the company. It grew pretty big. And in fact, over time, political parties wanted to use it. The 2014 elections, both parties were using it, but for different feature set. And what kind of features were possible? In fact, before that, uh, I, I want to know, you built this, uh, keeping in mind a B2B use case that you would go and sell businesses this service or you thought that there was a B2C opportunity here because the cricket service is obviously like a B2C opportunity that you started with. Oh yeah, we really wanted to do B2C, but then we realized there was also B2B. B2C would be like ad supported, like you would eventually include ad supported ads in the we, we started putting ads in there and we had built a targeting engine so I would not see the same ad too many times and so on but there were some very cool things like during the India-Pakistan World Cup match 2011 World Cup the one that we won here both in the first match was India versus uh, Bangladesh where Sachin and Sehwag both scored centuries and then the 
the Mohali match as well, right? Both those days, we registered 4 million plus calls. And I'm sure we must have got some 10 million. Our servers couldn't handle the load. And it was just nuts that Amazon and all these guys would call and say, who are you guys? Because your traffic is like flat. And all of a sudden, one day it spikes to like 4 million. Again, it goes down to like 50,000 a day, which was the average traffic at the time, right? Because we were uh, new. And the telcos would look at us and say, who are you guys? And would ask, is this even legal, what you're doing and stuff like that. But we didn't stop to ask for permission. We just said, this is the right thing to do for the consumer. And over time, we became one of Airtel's very large enterprise customers because we were buying thousands of numbers a month and paying for them. But we had a lot of interesting use cases, like eventually banks. Did you struggle to sign up advertisers and so you pivoted to B2B or was it not enough ad dollars being spent? Yeah, I think what ended up happening was we, see, we had a lot of ideas about what we could do with this. We had a very simple thing. You know, we would start a meeting saying, okay, dial this number and you would get our equivalent of our visiting card on SMS. And people would think we're a visiting card company. And they said, no, this is just a demo to show you what's possible by the concept. And by the end of the meeting, every customer would start giving us 20 other ideas of what could be done with this because it was a platform. And we just said, we'll build a really amazing platform. But I can tell you, in the cricket score thing, we ran into situations where people would create a lot of spam in the system. Right? So they would set up an auto dialer that every 30 seconds would be you know, just keep diving, right? And keep thing. And there were times we'd see a few people that would have 1,500 calls in the day or 1,200 calls in the day. And I would tell them, yeah, this is spam. I said, why do you say so? I said, a cricket match just 600 balls. So you can't be dialing 1,200 times for even in a 50-over game. What was the intent behind it? Like it was just really having fun or was there some way to... Yeah, somebody having fun and somebody just being too lazy to, to dial the number and programming a computer to do it for them. But so that that was some of the IP we kept building, these spam filters and things like that. We even made some games like the famous childhood game of book cricket, right? We programmed that on, on this call. And I remember Kingfisher having paid us a fairly large sum of money during an IPL because it kept the fans engaged. Right? All you had to do is keep hitting the green button on the phone and you're playing a game of, uh, of book cricket. There were some fun things like that, but there were some serious applications also. And I think we said, look, it's a platform. Anybody can use it. Literally, you can come sign up on our website, pay with a credit card or, or net banking and type what message you want as a response. You could connect it to your server and it could get some dynamic data. And so we had companies who were checking bank balances, brokerage account balances and sending. Because anyway, the customer would their balances and they would they say, hey, dial this number. You can get the balance anytime, right? It lowered their cost of support. We did a pilot once with uh, Make My Trip where they were saying that they were getting like a certain amount of response rates for SMSs when they would say, you know, if you're happy with the call center, reply Y for yes or not happy. We made it two different numbers and... Three hours later, they called us and said, we're getting 20 times the response rate. So you can't believe these numbers. It was definitely a product that in its time had a lot of, it was one of those which was just perfectly timed for that market. Now, if the company had continued, it would have probably evolved into a mobile app that knew all the preferences of the users and blah, 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 blah. It could have done a lot of personalized services. Did you... Also, take it to media. Like, I know like KBCM, all of these, like reality TV use this a lot. Did you do that? Prada Sky was a great example for us where I actually had shown them channel activation using a missed call. And we had talked to them and we had done pilots and stuff. And now today, that's how they do it. I mean, it's a yeah, big missed call from your registered mobile number. But I think there are some industries where early, 
But yes, we did do things like real-time voting for one of those support your, like uh, those talent shows online. We did that for Indian Idol, beauty show, beauty pageants, things like that. Right? So we see, saw a lot of those. This technology was patented. Could you prevent copycats? In theory, we could have. I don't want to say it out loud because the patents got granted after we sold the company to Twitter. And if you go online, so the legal owner of the company, of the patents is Twitter. But uh, the several of the use cases there are super exciting. If you think about some of the neo banks that we are investors in, like Neo and the others have this feature where you can turn off your credit card, your card, no transaction can happen. That could happen through a missed call too. And you know, it's an amazing feature or you know, security feature that we could give people. And we have conceived a lot of those and filed a lot of patents around all of those things as well. But I think over a period of time, as you went to the connected smartphone, it became less and less of a, of a requirement to do it through missed calls. But to this day, it's the simplest interface, right? You just need number literacy and you can get all this functionality. What would you sell to Twitter? I think uh, three, four things. Uh, one is, uh, did you have investors here? Did you raise external? Yeah. So we had all personally invested also. And for the zeroth company for Prime Ventures, which is what we where I am now, uh, the fund that we started. But it was also, we had the Bloom, we had Jungle Ventures, a few others as well. Ronnie Scovella, a few others had also invested in the company over time with the ones who conceived it. And in fact, Sunil Goel, who's now at started your nest. He was also uh, one of the early angels in the company. But it was largely a project of passion. And I think after four years, it felt uh, we had to make a call. Do we want to be in this for 10 years and raise a lot of money and try to build a large company here? And when the opportunity came to Twitter and there was one other potential suitor, it felt like the right time to sell. And plus Valerie being Caucasian American with family and husband, and they were going to start a family and ideally wanted to be stationed back in the US. And this business had no role in the US because uh, in fact, at her wedding, I had to create a, a demo and have everybody in the family pull out their cell phones and dial a number. And I just said, congrats, they'd be greeting so that they would understand what she's doing in India. So it was actually funny because she was building something in India that nobody in the US could imagine. They didn't know what a mistake call was. So anyway, it seemed like a good offer for everyone. I think all the investors got a good return. One lesson there for entrepreneurs is when you don't raise a lot of money, everybody does well with a uh, relatively modest exit. If you raise a lot of money, then it has to be a large exit. Right. And only raise a lot of money when you're sure you can go all the way. Otherwise, keep it modest. Don't get too ambitious. Easy when money is thrown at you to raise the money. When you, at the time of the exit, you'll realize it was the worst thing you could have done. Or it was probably not the best thing you could have done. But of course, in, in entrepreneurship, you don't get too many opportunities to build large companies. And when that happens, of course, you should take that opportunity. Every entrepreneur thinks he's going to build a large company. It's hard to have the ability to judge that. Is this uh, going to be a... And I think that's where, you know advisors and investors also have to be pragmatic about it because by the time you get to series B stage, I can understand at seed, I can understand at series A, but when you get to series B stage, when you're raising at 40, 50 million dollar valuation, by then you should be sure that you can go all the way. At least there is a reasonable probability, right? There might be some other thing you may stumble on with your execution risks, but at least there's no reason to believe it can't be a large company at that point, right? As opposed to, I still haven't found product market fit, I still haven't found business model, but I think someday I can. And therefore, I should raise, right? So that's the part that I always counsel founders saying, look, if you're not a well-oiled machine by then and you get a decent exit offer, I think you should seriously consider it because the path ahead is not proven. Success has not been proven yet. We had another situation with the company that got an outstanding exit offer. 
and they had built an incredible product, but they had not yet fully proven out the sales cycle. And of course, because of pandemic and things like that. And when the offer came, they said, look, we still think you can build a large company and we'll support you. But remember that you're betting on something that you've not yet proven. Right. And I think the founder also said, you're right, we have not yet proven it and we might be able to pull it off, but this is a good option and we should take it. What were the numbers for ZipDial? Like how much did you raise? How much did you get from the sale? So we, I don't know how much is publicly announced eventually, but we raised about less than 3 million, maybe 2.5 million from a bunch of investors. And I think the early ones certainly got more than 10x out of the coming. Maybe the latter ones, I think the last one probably got two and a half x but in four months. So it was an outstanding outcome, but small amounts of money. As far as the second company at that time was EasyTap, which just exited last month to, to raise a pay, right? So this was the one of the much longer journey, had raised a lot of capital, always had an opportunity to become a very large company, but we ended up partnering with RazorTap and RazorPay and there's still potentially a lot of upside left in the journey. But it was solving payments problem for retail, offline payments, making them smart. But it is a company that started by building hardware in India. And we built, you know, point of sale hardware, smart hardware with Android and a very ambitious plan. We actually had built devices that were certified and far more sleek and less expensive than what the Chinese manufacturers had made. But it was clear that over a period of time, they would overtake us because of their sheer scale and expertise in manufacturing, which we just did not have in India. And so at some point, it didn't make business sense to continue with that and we turned into much more of a software company doing in a front end point of sale. So it literally was the only sort of credible alternative for the large companies to uh, find labs. But it was much more designed around bank partnerships and a model that coexisted with the banks as opposed to competing. And it's done very well. It was profitable. It was one where I was, again, co-founder and chairman till the very end. But there was another couple of founders who ran the company for the first six to seven years. Then they left and then there was another, uh, the CFO took over and became the CEO, Bias Nambison, and then he saw it all the way through to exit. And it's actually a fascinating story to see that a non-founder and with all the founders having left the company, took the company to an amazing destination without really any material investments and things like that. And that again was an outcome where maybe barring the, everybody actually would have made some return and then obviously earlier investors made a stronger return. So that was the start. And back to 2012 is when we said, let's start a venture fund. So Zipdial, EasyTap, Bala, Shripati and I, all three of us used to work on Aadhaar. And all of us had worked in the valley, knew each other from different times. And we ended up starting Venture Capital Fund. And that was the origin of Prime. So Zipdial, EasyTap were the early companies. And then we started Prime in, in 2012. I have a question about EasyTap before we come to the Prime journey. EasyTap raised a fair amount of money and I mean, it had the potential to become a unicorn by now. What do you think happened there? What, what are some of those insights from that journey? Yeah, several of them. I think, look, there were execution snafus along the way. The one thing we view here, a celebratory party, and I'll say this, we got a lot of things wrong that we could have got right, but we got a lot of things right that we should have got right. And I think that was the story here, right? And we didn't make like fatal blunders, 
but we certainly didn't get everything perfectly. And see, some of these things, they might seem obvious today. But if you rewind the clock, it's like a VC fund, right? We have companies that flop after the seed. Now, when you look at it after it has flopped, it looks like an obvious thing. Right? What were you thinking? But if you rewind the clock to when you made the decision, it seemed like a perfectly rational decision. Now, when you're running a company, unfortunately, you can't take, you can't make two decisions. You have to, you can't hedge your bets. You have to make a decision and you've got to move forward. And only time will tell you if, if it was the right decision or not. So, for example, in EasyTap's case, early on, we invested very heavily in hardware, right? So, though we raised a lot of money and we won some very strategic contracts in the com- in the country where, uh, you know, with like SBI and stuff like that, but a very vapor thin margin. And it ended up, you know, at the time hurting the company. But winning SBI at the time seemed like a very important thing for us, right? So things like that, you now it could have been a huge moment in time for us. We could have had, you know, 10 million devices on the market and could have dominated the market if the partnership had been, we'd been able to structure it right and executed it right. But it turned out that wasn't the case. And most entrepreneurs believe that, yeah, whatever people say, my situation is going to be different and I'm going to pull it off. And so when you look at all of these moments at different moments in time, Great things are possible. At the end of the day, if you say, look, here's a company that when I started out, if someone had said, this is what the end game is going to be, I would have said, can you write the check? Now, along the way, you you have these moments where you say, oh, it could have been 10 times bigger. It could have been this. It could have been that. And so you look at it and, and you know, we had a similar situation with Happy, right? Which recently exited also for like a couple hundred billion to cred. And someone asked me almost the same question. And I said, look, two young men walked into my office with a blank sheet of paper in 2014. And today, from nothing, they've created 1,500 crores of value with maybe 25 million in investment. Then, Which part of this is a bad story here? What am I missing? The fact that it didn't become a unicorn, decacorn, how many companies do become that, right? I mean, yeah, in Kerry, we have 100 right now. You know, I think that number is unfortunately going to shrink. I think many of the unicorns are not going to be in, are not on solid footing. But regardless, I think on absolute number, if you say it was a blank sheet of paper, two 24-year-old boys, and seven years later, it was 1,500 crores, with with 100 crores invested, I think we would all be signing the check right now. So I think this is the part that I think in our industry, unfortunately, last year we got very greedy and we saw a bunch of these unicorns being formed in the in, in the really crazy overhyped market. And we have to celebrate the mid-size outcomes more because these are going to be material, right? And and uh, there are going to be several investors, several founders, several employees who are going to make life-changing returns, especially at the employees and the founders level. And that is the fuel that we need to have in the startup ecosystem. The unicorns, the decacorns will be few and far between and they will inspire people. But the reality is those happen more by exception than by a plan. Right? I don't think anybody expected all of these companies to fire on all cylinders perfectly and the perfect storm of UPI and all these things to happen. So I would say, yeah, it could have been much bigger. It could have also gone to zero. We have to put that in perspective. I think what they ended up achieving, I think, is to find a home with a high quality company like Razorpay and so on. It's an outstanding outcome at the end of the day and it's a win for everyone. But in these things, not everything ends up being 100x and then that's reality. That one SBI snafu kind of derailed the trajectory and then once Bias came in then he probably like did a little bit of reorientation. Right. He's straightening things out because his CFO he looked at and said this is rubbish. This, this doesn't make any business sense. Let's fix all these things. I think what happens with startups is sometimes you're very greedy 
And sometimes you think this is the only time I'm going to do this. And yes, it doesn't make perfect business sense. In the long run, it's going to work out. And sometimes it doesn't. Yeah, like everyone likes to compare themselves with Amazon. Like Amazon burnt Amazon losses for X number of years. And so this is par for the course. Yeah. What worked well for EasyTap was eventually when, when Bias took the helm, was he realized that you know, some of these things had to be streamlined and cleaned up. And that's why I said the things we should have gotten right, we did. The things we could have gotten right, we didn't get all of them right. right? And that was the story. Coming back to Prime, then 2012, you started Prime. You were not very active as an operator for both Zipdial and EasyTap. You, you were mostly like playing a strategic role. Yes, which meant that I used the product. I, I did everything, but I never took the responsibility for it. Somebody else was running it. I say that slightly tongue-in-cheek because I was I used to sit down and spend a lot of time on the product side, strategy, or in the sales execution. I would go and meet customers and, you know, in the early days. But it was clear that the role was never going to be operating. So we're now investing, fast forward to today, we're investing our fourth fund, which is $120 million. We started small. We started with the first fund, which is not yet, not quite $8 million. How, how did you raise the money? Was it domestic investors or did you? So far, we have largely raised from overseas investors. I think the regulations are now going to make it easier for us to mix both domestic and overseas. But earlier, we had these challenges around uh, round tripping, as it's called. So we focused primarily on overseas investors exclusively. Was it tough? Raising that first fund? The first fund was, I have to credit my partners, but they had very strong relationships in the Valley. And so it was a lot easier because we had already started Zipdial and EasyTap and there was something to show. And many times I talked to a lot of new VC funds and they always say, oh, I'm going to raise blah. And they end up spending one year, two years raising. We did our whole fundraise in like four weeks, maybe. So okay, what do we get out of this? That's the first fund, right? And we just, bam, and we started focusing on investing. And we had a running start with Zabdial and EasyTap. And there was something to show already. So people said, okay, these guys are serious. They've already been doing it, right? Though it was the people who started the companies too in, the, in those cases. We were not in that role, right? So... I think like all things with entrepreneurship, we approach it as entrepreneurs. Our startup is a VC fund. Yes, we are founders, we're entrepreneurs. And we, I think, got, uh, of course, very lucky with the initial support that we had. But we stayed very picky. We didn't de deploy a lot of capital for a long time. But I think the first 18 months, we had one very small investment. And then we met Hacker Earth and Happy. And that was really the start of it. And so we went for two years without a salary because we, uh, we said we can't keep drawing capital just to pay ourselves unless we fight companies to invest in. So everybody glorifies life as a VC. It is, it is a lot of hard work. And you tend to do reasonably well financially, regardless of which company does well. That's true. And that's business that we are in. Basically portfolio theory. It's a portfolio. And if you are in that one company and you are the founder, of course, you're going to do very, very well. But as a VC, you know, as long as one of the companies or two of the companies do well, you do reasonably well yourself. But it takes time. And I remember my partnership with the telling me, venture capitalism gets its slow schemes and you'll be ready for it. And... It's true. There's nothing happens fast in our business, except you could lose money very fast, but you certainly can't multiply it. I think you have to take the long-term view and be very, very aligned with your stakeholders. And we have two stakeholders. We have our LPs, we have our entrepreneurs, right? And if we are not aligned with them at any point in time, the relationship breaks down. So you have to be aligned with them. And everybody in this industry is happy to reward performance. Just like we are happy to reward entrepreneurs when they're doing very well. Maybe it's a bonus MSOP grant or something like that. 
that our LPs are happy to reward us if we give them great returns. And, and that's an alignment of interests here, right? If there's one thing I've learned in this industry is just try to be fair, transparent, apply common sense rules and good things actually happen over time. And you have to play the long-term game. So it's not a get-rich-fast scheme for sure. And the moment you do that, actually, people look at you very differently. We have had LPs. Today I had some meetings. You know, and now I've got IFC as an LP. But you can meet people for years. And all of a sudden, it's okay. Now we're ready to move forward with you. And you have to be patient and good to them. You can't just say, well, you know, I met him three times and he's not doing anything. So let me stop meeting him. It's also very cottage industry. So you, your reputation precedes you and both good and bad, especially bad. So you got to be very professional in your dealings with people and so on. And if you think about the large funds here in India, many of them don't necessarily have to go and raise the capital because they are Indian entities of large global brands. But people like us, we have to do everything, right? We are entrepreneurs. We have to go raise capital. We have got to go find the way to manage the capital. We have to work through the returns, etc. And it's important for us to have this very complete 360 degree view and balancing the time. But you're not out raising a fund when you're raising a fund, you're always fundraising. And many a time you meet somebody and say, you're now in fund four, okay, we'll start quoting you guys and maybe in fund six will show up. Because they also want to see us perform over a period of time. These are all multi-billion endowments, family offices, and there's a lot of domestic capital also coming. These are long-term relationships that they look at. How big is uh, fund four? $120 million. Uh, almost like a 15x of your fund one. Yeah, yeah. And I think I have to say, if I look back at it, it is really humbling for us to see how, what we started with. We have no idea what we were doing. We didn't understand the business at all. We learned the business, but we were really fortunate to have people who supported us with an intent that they seem like good, honest, authentic people. They are going to try their best and maybe some good things will happen. And I think, you know, our first fund has already delivered and returned property style returns in more than 4x to all our IPs. And the second fund is doing, all our funds are thankfully doing probably amongst the best in the country. How did you hold your skills as an investor in terms of being able to take that call that, okay, this I want to invest in? Oh, Akshay, we have made more mistakes than got things right. That's the reality of it. This is a business where there will be mistakes of omission. What we cannot afford is mistakes of commission. So... We will miss out on companies that will give us outstanding, that would have given us outstanding returns on a daily basis. The only thing that matters to me is what logos make it to our wall. Then once it makes to the wall, then we are all in trying to make that help make that company successful. And with three partners, Shripati Amit and myself, and we have two partners in the US who are partners emeritus, as we call them, work closely with us. The only thing we look at is... The companies that we do admit into our portfolio that we are privileged enough to work with, what can we do to make them successful at all times? When success, in, everybody comes in thinking they're going to build a large unicorn of a company, but in reality, it doesn't work out for everyone. And the ones that end up doing very, very well, of course, we'll do very well thanks to them. But the others also, these are founders that are trying very hard and we have to do everything we can to try to make them successful up to a certain point and if not, try to find some safe outcome for them because the, the outcome might still be material to the entrepreneurs, even if it might not be material to us. And so we constantly are looking out for, okay, things are not going great. Okay, how do we help them? Maybe we help them brainstorm through a few things. So we end up spending more 
tie in with the companies that will probably not end up giving us crazy returns than we do with the companies that will. And sometimes it's a dichotomy of that because logically one would say, hey, if this guy is not going to play in the IPL, stop wasting your time coaching him. But uh, you can't apply that here. Not that he will, if we could keep coaching, we'll get into the IPL. But, you know, it's important for us. The commitment we give our founders is we do everything to try to make you successful, right? There's no guarantees here. And it may not be this startup, they may do the next startup that might be successful. Or And this is a business of referral and reputation. And most important thing I want is when LPs meet us, they say, okay, you are executing the plan you told us you were going to execute. Because that's why we invested in you. If I say that well, we are going to invest in 20 companies and put X million dollars per company to work and I end up investing in 200 companies with one tenth of X, I might still give them a great return, but they'll say, you probably got lucky because this is not what you told us you were going to do. That So it may not be a reason why they would continue to work with us. And if you're building an institution, you have to build a relationship. The same thing is true with entrepreneurs. I go tell all the entrepreneurs, you know, I'm a marketing guy. I'm, it's a product guy, Shippati is an ops guy. They're all, all available for you. And then once we fund them, if neither of us is available for them, we might get away in that particular transaction, but word will get around that these guys say all these things, but they don't do any of it. I think it's very important for investors to know what game they're playing and to be very transparent about the game with founders. And that's where the match happens. Because the money, good companies will always be able to raise money. There is some valuation that we might harmonize from each other a little bit. But outside of that, why are you working with us? And why are we working with you? That has to be clear to both parties. Right? What am I willing to do for you? And what do you need me to do for you? Because some entrepreneurs would be awesome in marketing. They say, hey, Sanjay, you might be a great marketer, but you don't need your help. Right? And some might be great in, in operations and they don't need ship with these inputs as much. Or some might be kick-ass product guys and some might, don't worry about our product we got it. If we have something, we'll come to you, but we don't need you. So we need to be very clear amongst ourselves and with our founders, why uh, why is this a right fit for us and why are we the right partner for them? And when there is clarity there, I think it's an obvious fit. Of course, there are the routine things of, is this a large opportunity? Is this team capable of building up on it? Is this team likely to be able to fundraise? Are there going to be follow-on investors that will want to invest in this area? Are there too many competitors? Is this likely to happen now or is this likely to happen five years from now and then should we be pausing on this? Things like that. And we may not agree with the founder, right? We might think that it's around the corner and we might think it's five years out and we might both be wrong. You know, it might, it might actually be one year out and somebody else might be doing it slightly differently but better. All these things are, are there, but ultimately it is about being comfortable with each other. Do I think I can really hang out with Akshay when the going is tough and he calls me at 3 a.m. and I say, oh, shoot, man, this guy, I don't want to deal with him again. Or am I going to say, how can I help? doesn't matter what time of the day is, please keep calling me if there is a problem or, and I always have this thing, you know, good news takes the staircase, bad news takes the elevator. So you should want to call me and say, Something went wrong. But if you are also, if we end up in a situation where you say, oh my God, the last thing I want to tell about this is Sanjay, right? It's a bad relationship. It's a bad situation. Because remember, we are in the, on the cap table. We are in this together. Both of us sink or swim with this thing and we need to get to shore to a safe harbor, right? Whatever it might be. And so I think that feeling that we can work transparently with each other in bad times is more important than anything else. And of course, we're all happy in good times. But it's in the, and, and in, because in a startup, 360 days of the year are crap. Five days of the year might be good. In a leap year, 361 days are crap. So it's always in that mode. And you don't get any respite here, right? In this business, right? Either there's a competitor who showed up or there's a customer who's upset. And as a VC with 40 companies, 50 companies in our portfolio, every day somebody's having a decent day. 
some days are very exciting there and we see all the emotions on the same day and we have to be in this mode saying nothing is as good as it appears nothing is as bad as it appears right and we have to then the guys and sometimes as an entrepreneur it's very lonely and you're sitting there going oh shoot man you know I am dead here you know this, this company never going to make it and we have to be the cheerleading squad for them I remember there were time in early days of my gate when the founders told us one day they said when we come out of your office we feel that these three guys are more excited about our company than we are and what, what are they seeing that we are not seeing and at the same time, sometimes these guys are crazily optimistic and euphoric and we have to show them the mirror and say, this is not happening. And if we don't, the market will do that and it's expensive for everyone when that happens. But I want to understand what is what are the filters you apply when you invest? Do you look at revenue positive or do you also fund at the pre-revenue stage? Do you look for young founders? Do you look for like tech first kind of companies or are there sectors that you're more fond of? All of the above and none of the above are necessary and sufficient conditions. I think tech first is important for Prime because we are technologists and we believe tech is the only way in which we can solve problems at scale. But outside of that, we have funded founders who didn't have an idea but liked the space and founders who had a product with a you know, million dollars of revenue and everything in between. Half-formed teams, fully-formed teams, etc. Now, of course, the quantum might be different. In some cases, we might be able to fund two and a half, three million. In some cases, we'd be probably funding 100K and say, hey, let's work together here. Because we are early-stage investors and we like to do category-creating companies, like when we funded YGate, there was nothing like it. Right now, yeah, there are probably a couple of others attempting to copy it, but it's not like have we proven in any other part of the world because the concept doesn't exist, right? Americans cannot visualize what it means to use MyGate because they don't live in gated communities in that part of the world. So you can't say that, oh, this happened in China, this happened in the US, this happened in Europe, it will happen in India. Well, that's not how it works here. But we are very excited when we can apply first principles and say, this could happen in India and uh, at scale. So that's that's something we love to do. Now, that doesn't mean that we will do everything that has never been proven anywhere in the world. We will also look at a few things that, you know. So the real things that we look at, there are the three T's. Team, TAM, timing. Because the most outstanding of entrepreneurs might be able to build a market-dominating company, but if the size of the market is tiny, the price is not worth winning. It is just not worth winning. Yet. So that is the first and most important thing for us. And the second part is the timing. I was wrong in mobile payments on the timing with them check. Of course, it was hindsight that told me that. But it just, and I was, but I was not wrong with that long. I can't see, I think four or five years is not that much, but it was just off from a timing perspective. Now, ideally, you don't want to be late on timing because the biggest companies happen when you just get the timing right. So this is the are you on the leading edge or the bleeding edge or the trailing edge? If you're on the trailing edge, you miss the opportunity. And so these are where you might make some mistakes of commission. But it's only hindsight that will tell you that. There are certain things we look for. Is this entrepreneur a learning machine? And this is why I say this is sort of stupid if people say, oh, I just did a check in the first meeting. In fact, I tell founders, why do you take the check you got in the first meeting? Because that person does not know about you. Unless you know that person who's investing, how are you going to know if when things go wrong, you want to talk to this person? So it's actually, it seems very tempting for founders, but it's, I think, the wrong thing at seed. And later on, it's a different issue because your business is running and you just need the cash. But early on, it's very important to be careful about whom you pick on your cap table and your early stage entrepreneur. And we look 
of course, at those interactions, I look at, I was giving some examples yesterday. People will say, oh, how do I contact you? You are an entrepreneur. If you can't figure out, my name is Sanjay Swami. I happen to be the founding partner at Prime Venture Partners. Our domain is primevp.in. Can't figure out my email address? Seriously? And you think that, I, you know, and you know, the number one thing I'm looking for is hustle. If you can't figure out my email address, how the heck are you going to go and contact some head of product at HDFC Bank and say, buy my software, buy security solution? I look for some of these sites. I don't necessarily hold it against founders, but I really love it when founders say, oh, okay, are you Sanjay Prime? Or attempt. That's what I've done is in sales, I've always just sent cold emails. Oh, tell me when you're free. No, you tell me when you want to meet. If I was to do that, I would, and I'm living there. I hope some of your listeners learn from this, whether it's with us or anybody else. You need to meet somebody in Mumbai and you're sitting in Bangalore. What do you do? You can tell them, look, I'm planning to be in Mumbai sometime over the next couple of weeks. Is there any day that works better for you? To buy your ticket and say, I'm coming on the 27th. I hope it works for you. If that's an important meeting, you do a few things. These are not lies. You're being clever about it. He says, well, you know, 27th, is a board meeting and I'm packed, but the 26th works. Okay, now it's too late for you to see. You just committed that you're only there on 27th. Right? That is, if you had said, oh, like two days, and he says the 26th works, you can travel on the 26th, or you can say, oh, let me try to make it work. I'll get back to you. And these are, you know, you've got to be learning machines. You've got to understand. And we look for that, right? Because professionalism is about how you interface with people because it's not me, it is your customers, it is your employees, it is your next round investors that you're talking to. Can you hold a dialogue and you have your voice? I always tell founders, look, there's a thousand of our species. There's one of you. Your company is unique. It's the only thing. And you need to be the one that has to be in the privileged seat, not us as investors. The moment you think that the investors are the ones in the privileged seat, you've lost the plot. And so it might not be helpful to us, but I always tell founders, look, you have to remember always that the right to invest in the company is something you are giving investors. We are not taking on that. We are requesting you for that. Then you have to feel really comfortable. You are evaluating us. I start so many meetings. I tell founders, I'm not sure what you know about us. I'm happy to tell you about what we do. Nine out of 10 will say, we know everything. We have read about your website, we read your blogs, we read your thing. In my blogs, I write the same thing. You clearly didn't read my blogs because my blogs say, ask me questions in the beginning. And I'm imagining saying, Akshay is going to, sorry, Akshay, I'll use you as the example. He's the entrepreneur and he didn't even bother to ask me what my thesis is on this topic. When he goes to a customer, he's going to behave the same way. He's going to rattle about uh, you know, everything about his product without knowing if the customer has this problem or not. Because every product has actually got 17 features and the customer needs three of them. And the opportunity in the first five minutes to ask questions is because the customer is going to tell you which things really matter. And that is so you have to dynamically think, say, let me not waste my time with this first 14 features because this is last thing you know, and don't sell beyond the close. Right? Things like that. And that's what they're evaluating in the meeting. Saying if this is how bad he is in front of us, he's going to be the same in front of the customer and this company never going to be successful. Please, uh... Raising funds from LPs and finding good entrepreneurs, which one is more challenging? I'll tell you which one is most exciting. Actually, both have their... When you get really high quality LPs and they ask you the most difficult questions about why you invested in this company and why you think it's going to be big when nobody else sees it, etc., right? It's really exciting. And people look at the results and numbers and say, what is your process for this? And how do you do this? And what is this? It's like the most boring conversation. But when they challenge you about companies, and we have some, uh, we've been very fortunate to have some of those, and they ask such deep, insightful questions. Right? One of our LPs or prospective LPs actually signed up for the service of one of our companies and started using it and had feedback. It's so awesome, right, to have somebody like that because they're like, 
they really are getting into the what we really do because the operational side of running a VC fund and the numbers we do, these are not targets for us. These are output metrics. The real thing is the real business is it's talking to an automotive engineer about the car that they designed, but making a decision based on the seat covers, right? And thought the car, the car is the engine inside, you know, talk to me about it, right? Because that's what's going to give me the zero to 60, right? Not the seat covers. I love it when people get into the guts. Because ideally, we've done very thoughtfully. And if we made a mistake, we have learned from it. And when people challenge us, sometimes we actually realize even in those conversations, yeah, this is, we had not thought about it that way, which is not a bad thing. It's that we need to be a learning machine and we are because we are also entrepreneurs. Now, when it comes to entrepreneurs, it's exactly the same thing, right? When you meet somebody that has so amazingly thought out the ways this could happen, the ways what could go wrong and how they could fix it. And but why you despite all this risk in some corner of this thing aligning with that thing, aligning with that thing, etc. This is like such an incredibly transformative solution. We may or may not fund them, but it's just so exciting to reach out to them because the I've, I've got several years of experience as a polite way of saying I'm an old man, but I've stayed, I think, young because every Monday morning or every every day of the week or every time my phone rings, I'm thinking, who is this next guy who's going to come up with something really exciting? Guy can be in both genders, of course. And I'm looking forward to that. I wake up in the morning, I look at my email, I go, oh, this guy sent me a plan. Without my glasses, I start reading the plan. I say, Why? This sounds really exciting. I got to meet this person, right? And every day, live in that hope that the next person that's going to call you or email you is somebody who's just going to come up with something so breathtakingly exciting. And so we're not hunting for them necessarily. And hopefully it's a match that somebody else has facilitated with an introduction, much like an arranged marriage system is also the same. And of course, knowing the reality that we will back less than 1% of those we meet. And that's the sad part because sometimes you get so excited about the business but or the opportunity, but it just doesn't make sense for us at the fund level or I get excited, but my partners don't or my partners get excited and I don't, things like that. That's, of course, the amazing thing about a tight-knit partnership where there is complete trust that the only reason we didn't support it is because we honestly couldn't get convinced. And we've been very fortunate to have that kind of a partnership and that's how it works the best. Because when everybody's convinced, we just are fully aligned. If a company has some problem, immediately everybody is available for it. Nobody's saying, I told you that was never going to work. And that's actually the worst thing that can happen in a partnership. Our philosophy has always been, look, everybody can veto the deal, similar to the hiring uh, thing. And even if we disagree before, once we decide we are going to do it, then everybody is all in. Then there's no more statement of, I told you it wasn't going to work. So that is a culture thing. But I think the most exciting thing, of course, is meeting new entrepreneurs. No doubt. You get to learn about their space. What are some of the spaces or technologies that you are interested in? I am most excited about anything that is digitizing things in India. If I look at MyGate being the front gate register intercom that got digitized. If I look at Wheelseye, that is one of our portfolio companies in the logistics space, they're digitizing the fleets and trucks for the small fleet owners largely. If I look at uh, Dozy, which goes under the mattress and digitizes it automatically records heart rate, respiration rate, blood pressure for all patients. In government hospitals, you know, the doctor is able to walk in at 9 o'clock and know that patient on bed number 73 and 94 are the two critical ones rather than going 1, 2, 3, 4, 5 and things like that. It's like completely changing that. Uh, we have this really exciting company called Bolt, which is designing, you know, helping design EVs and make them smart and, you know, and also it's got a large 
charging network, etc. Companies that are really doing the unthinkable. Neo is like such a crazy banking experience you get when you download that app. And I have my US bank account also with Wells Fargo Bank and crap compared to what the experience, right? It's a good one of the better ones in the US. Today, a friend of mine said, I'm buying a hearing aid for my dad. Can you, do you mind just buying it? Then I'll pay you in the US. And I said, okay, I'll share you my account details. And I looked at the app. There was no way to share the account details. But Neo had this, the first version is the share button. You click on it and you can share on WhatsApp, whatever. And so things like that, you look at and you say, my gosh, we're so far ahead in India already on some of these things. And you know, so this digital India thing is happening at crazy scale. And, and if my founders have not been mentioned in this podcast, I apologize to them because we think all of them are exciting. And so digital India, digitization of India and services built on that. We have another one in Agri, another one in supply chain financing, a couple of them actually. So it's just happening at scale. This urban company guy came and was giving me a massage at home and he had a baby and you know, he's going to go see the baby next week. But you know, he had a loan that he wanted to repay a little bit. And I said, who gives you a loan? And he said, money tap. So I got it. I tell you, I almost broke down. I was like, wow, I've been so good about this moment. And he got scared. He said, Saab, I want to know more about how this thing helps you. And then at the end, he asked, Saab, aapka bhi koi lending ka business hai kya? I said, And he gave me a lot of feedback how he thought the service should have been done, why it could have been better, but what he loved about it and how they really helped him at the right time in life. We are able to, we have an opportunity in India as investors and as entrepreneurs. And it's a unique point in time, I think, in India where the brain and the heart can be aligned. And by that, I mean, you can do the right thing and you can make a lot of money doing so. It's a perfect situation, right? Because all of us, after at the end of the day, we want to leave our legacy as we solve some real problems for people. We don't want to leave a legacy. I I made a ton of money. That's the least of it, right? So financial success, and I always tell myself every day and I tell entrepreneurs every time I meet, to me, financial success is an outcome. It's an outcome of doing the right things. Yes, Gautam Adani is the number two richest man in the world today. But I don't think he went in saying my goal is to become the richest man on the planet. His goal is to solve these problems and do it right and do it ethically and work hard sincerely and do it. Good things will happen. Now, is he the number one or is he the number 10 or the number 23? is irrelevant. It's more money than you can ever fathom and, and need. And none of that is anyway something that he plans to spend in his lifetime. So for all of us at much different scale, of course, the intent here is really to solve real problems and make a living doing so. We make a good living, a great living, an outstanding living, a spectacular living. It doesn't matter beyond a certain point because then the responsibility is, okay, now we have to get into the giving phase of our lives and how do we do these, etc. Right. So that becomes important over a period of time. I think that is the first part that we can really align the heart and the brain and do great things that solve real problems for people, bring them forward in life and at the same time while delivering good returns for uh, investors. And interestingly, all of our LPs end up being pension funds and endowments and foundations who are going to take the proceeds and the profits of this and turn it back into building a cancer hospital or, you know, doing some cancer research or doing this or doing that. So while it feels like just trying to make rich people richer, the purpose of venture capital and the returns that they generate, we ends up going back and furthering the cause of society and mankind. So it's a funny way of saying here's an opportunity to do, continue to do good across the board and yet also hopefully do well financially for yourself too. And I think what you do with it 
it is the responsibility that we all carry. And I think to get more advanced in age, they start thinking about these things a lot more and saying, look, how do we make sure that good comes out of this as well? And when you evaluate entrepreneurs, you start sometimes looking from that lens saying, yes, they also, because they also have to be good people, which means they'll look after their teams properly. They will look after their, they'll have the right work ethic and work culture. And all of this, it ends up lining very well in the long run. And I think we are so lucky to be in an environment and in an industry where we have an opportunity to make a difference here. And people like you also, I think you get to interact with so many people, you get to share the word, you get to things right. we also run a podcast of our own focused on, on, on entrepreneurs. I think the luxury, speaking from my side as a, a podcast host, not a guest, it is such a privilege to talk to some of these people and hear their, their, their life journeys, right? And it, so much of good is happening and it doesn't get shared with people. And today the internet is really enabling a lot of that to happen. So it's a great point in time for us to be working on these things. Just one last question I want to ask you. I know we've overshot our time, but I want to understand what causes these cycles in the venture capital funding. Like you said that the last two years were excessive valuation happening. Then before that, there was a Another period of semi-winter that now again people are saying that winter is coming. But what causes these cycles where there's suddenly a lot of money, suddenly money dries up? And Yeah, so I wish I could explain it like an economist would. The way I see it, look, technology creates step function like growth. And every six to eight years, you see a new cycle of technology where new levels can be achieved and that now you know ai is there and you know had distributed web with the web 3 and things like that now like vehicles you know these are the step function changes seven eight years ago it was something else it was more you know connecting the dots distributed systems going to the cloud etc and i think those moments people realize these are gold rush opportunities and so entrepreneurs come out we don't know what's going to happen but we know something exciting is going to happen upi in india for example everybody knew something big is going to happen nobody knew what so that attracts a lot of interest both amongst entrepreneurs and investors saying look this could be the next big thing for the next wave of uh, growth and while that's happening some fundamental research is going on preparing for what's going to happen seven years from now in the next big thing, right? And those are the sort of building blocks for the next wave. And of course, at some point, what ends up happening is the winners start separating themselves from the not so great ones. And and that's when you start seeing sort of this thing drying up because people say, okay, the winners have been created now. There is no room for some of these. And then, so that's one way of looking at it. And then you go into this mode where you're like hunkering down, starting to build. This is the best time to build if you're a founder, right? Because you know that by the time you have validated, got product market fit, business model taken care of, etc., people are going to come back to the table with a lot of money saying, okay, what is this new exciting stuff that's going to happen? And I liken it to sometimes driving a car. You're on the highway, you can't be going in fifth gear all the time. Every now and then you need to pause, you get to refuel, you got to slow down a little bit, or maybe there are some potholes in the road, maybe there is some construction work going on, you got to slow down and come back up with more energy and so on. So now it ends up being tied also to, you know, interest rates and inflation and all of those issues where money becomes cheaper and more accessible. 
accessible you know, and you know more money stays in the private markets. So the more economic reason here is, of course, generally, if you see from an investor perspective, you have a portfolio that is part public, part private in terms of that's how you balance liquidity and long term growth. And what ends up happening is, as you've seen now with interest rates going up, the public markets get deflated. And now suddenly venture capital is a disproportionately higher share or private markets is disproportionately higher, higher share than public. And so as investors, you can't have that because you're managing the large hedge funds at university endowments. So I'm pausing any new venture deployment. And so that causes a deflation as well. And until the public markets pick up and become a larger percentage of a more reasonable percentage of portfolio and then more deployment happens in private markets. Right? So I think at all levels, everybody ends up having reasons for it. But I think in tech, what ends up happening is you have these every seven years, something new that keeps reinventing and that creates 10x opportunities and that creates a bull rush. So 2020 to 2022, I'm guessing that in the US, there was that Robin Hood led bump in the stock market in the US because of which more capital would have got allocated. Plus there was that whole remote new normal theme because of which the land grab opportunity was there. So both of these trends would have contributed to the high amount of uh, capital chasing startups. Yeah, I think several things, right? There was a once in a lifetime, hopefully, situation with the pandemic and it created some new short-term winners, but it created a change in work culture. It created a change in how people looked at, looked to discover products, looked to procure them, etc. And some of these are temporary, some of these were, are permanent. And the ones that are temporary, you're seeing some contraction that's happening now because we're going back to a physical world. But the ones that are permanent will continue to do well, although they may see some short-term contract. Zoom, for example, probably got overheated as a uh, company because it was the only way you could do business. But it still is here to stay. And it's probably now much more robust and stable. But in the short run, because of the slowdown in its usage, it's probably going to take, take more of it than it deserves. And then it'll come back to uh, a more stable uh, thing, right? I think this the pandemic was an unusual time where things like got like crazily heated up because everything remote uh, became the way... But over a period of time, I think that will stabilize down. And hopefully we don't have these crazy moments, right? We have that, you have the war in Europe and all of these crazy things. Of course, climate change is also one which is going to throw a lot of unpredictability into the future. But overall, I think it's just going to be a matter of just accepting that things never go up monotonically and linearly. And downturns are actually opportunities. It may hurt some, but it is also going to help others. And we see companies of ours also that were overheating, that were spending wildly and getting great traction. The moment they realized that capital is going to be a little more scarce, they were introspected, they looked at their execution time and say, oh my God, we've been so inefficient, we've been wasting so much money. And I think now some of those may die because of it as companies. Some of it might, some will come out stronger and those who come out stronger will actually be much leaner, meaner and more profitable companies. And some, so for them, this downturn is indirectly a blessing because otherwise they would have just been very inefficient companies and that's never good in the long run. But for the one that sort of died because of this, this is bad news for them, one would think. But my view is that, see, if you're building a lasting company, knowing what you said, every six to seven years is going to be a cycle correction. If you want the company to last 
you know, 30, 50 years, then you have to be capable of withstanding the cycle correction. For the young entrepreneurs, the best thing is they're starting at the worst time. And so they're going to have a, hopefully a five to seven year run where no, it's only going to keep getting better. And they need to, whereas if you started in year four of the cycle, then you had only three years before. So everybody says, oh, I'll wait for the market to get better before I start. I said, the wrong thing. Because you're going to have less and less time to prove things out. Uh, whereas if you're starting now, you're going to get the maximum time to prove things out. But it will be difficult now. But everybody says it's too difficult. Hey, this is not meant to be easy. If it was meant to be easy, everybody would be doing it. It's meant to be difficult. If it was straightforward, easy to do, and everybody could come and take money and start building things, then then what's the fun? It needs to be difficult so that there's the feeling of accomplishment. And you're, you're really doing the right thing and doing it in a smart and intelligent way and, and not focusing on the outcomes. I think this is the one thing, one takeaway that I would love viewers to have is don't focus on the outcomes. The outcomes will be what they are. That actually is the last thing you can control. And that brings us to the end of this conversation. I want to ask you for a favor now. Did you like listening to the show? I'd love to hear your feedback about it. Do you have your own startup ideas? I'd love to hear them. Do you have questions for any of the guests that you heard about in the show? I'd love to get your questions and pass them on to the guests. Write to me at ad at the podium dot in. That's ad at t h e p o d i u m dot in.